Hi, everybody. It's Mike Morse here on Open Mic. Our next guest is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Texas and has just had one of the most fascinating victories in the country, successfully freeing Lydell Grant, an innocent man who was locked up for almost 10 years for a murder he did not commit. A young Texas man by the name of Aaron Shearhorn was stabbed to death outside a Houston nightclub in 2010. Six different people, six eyewitnesses identified him on the stand, swore under oath that it was him, Lydell Grant is the murderer, and all six of them got it wrong. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Joining us now is Mike Ware of the Innocence Project of Texas. Welcome to Open Mic. Thank you, Mike. It's it's really great to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So tell us how and why you got involved in the Lydell Grant murder case. Well, it you know, I, I run the Innocence Project of Texas, uh, which is a nonprofit that I co-founded back in 2006 here in Texas. And um, we um, we get hundreds of letters a month and uh, from inmates or inmates families um, requesting our help. And and almost all of them, uh, you know, claim that they are innocent and have been wrongfully convicted of of an offense that they had nothing to do with. And uh, this letter from uh, Lydell, Mr. Grant, came in much like the other hundreds of letters that we get. And uh, it made it through our vetting system. And uh, I ultimately assigned it to um, a, a student that I teach. I teach uh, an actual innocence clinic at Texas A&M School of Law in which the students take real cases and study them. And I assigned this case to a student and he noticed and we started looking at the case that um, uh, that the DNA in this case that was uh, extracted from the victim's fingernails. And because of the nature uh, of this crime and how the murder took place, uh, any foreign DNA under the victim's fingernails would be highly relevant, highly probative that they, they extracted um, DNA from the victim's fingernails that didn't belong to the victim that almost certainly belonged to the murderer. And that Lydell Grant was obviously excluded as the donor of that foreign DNA. And yet when we went back and looked at the trial testimony, the Houston police department forensic uh, scientist lab person, DNA person testified that in fact, the, the testing was inconclusive and that Lydell Grant could not be excluded as the contributor. So that was not helpful along with the six eyewitnesses. Uh, who let, me that let me slow you down. Was that a flat out lie? 
You know, um, effectively, yes. Um, it, 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 since it's a mixture and since it was in 2011, when they did the testing 2012, when she testified, you could make a case based on what they knew then that it was inconclusive, but what you would have to say, you know, giving them the benefit of every doubt is that if Lydell Grant is in there, there is definitely a, a third party in there that is neither the victim or Lydell Grant. That that much is very obvious, even back then. Were and, they at, at trial, did they identify that there was another person? No, did just, not. This is inconclusive. We don't know if it's Mr. Grant's or not. They said it's inconclusive, and they just left it at that, which is, um, that that's a meaningless term. You hear it a lot, from particularly from law enforcement DNA people, uh, it seems like inconclusive is really can mean anything and mean nothing. Yeah. And the prosecutor pushed the technician and said, well, if it's inconclusive, that means Mr. Grant cannot be excluded. Correct. And the, um, uh, the lab person went along with that. Yeah. Well, I guess logically, if it's inconclusive, you know, you and I can't be excluded. Uh, right. And he can't, the and he judge can't. can't be excluded. Right. Right. But they didn't make it clear that that's what they meant by that term. But, but Mike, did uh, did the defense have the DNA um, looked at by their own expert? No, not not that I know of. Um, if if they did, the the expert, uh, and and I, I'm almost certain they didn't. I did talk to the defense lawyer, and uh, and and so no, and 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 should have. But you know, it's odd when um, um, when I went to uh, the DA's office with this information and talked to uh, a lawyer who had been court appointed to do post-conviction DNA testing for Lydell and showed it to them and just spelled it out for them, you know, by the numbers. Uh, the lawyer who had been court appointed said, you know, even my expert didn't pick up on that. And so I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> what's the deal? Uh, you know, my student and I, and we're not, and we're not far from being experts, Right. It's, it's a very it, it's a very simple reading where you can see that this is not right, you know. So, wow. So we we jumped we we went to the DNA before we went to the eyewitness stuff because I I find the eyewitness um, stuff that it, really fascinating that Mr. Grant was identified at trial by six eyewitnesses. Yes. Um, but you know we the reason you were able to get him out of prison was because of the DNA. Yes. But the reason he was convicted was because of these six eyewitnesses. Yes. All right. So let's, I mean, we're going to come back to the DNA because I think it's fascinating. Um, and a teaser alert, they may or may not have found the actual killer, but we're going to talk about them in, in a second. Does the, does the way the murder happened, is it relevant to the story? Cause you mentioned that, that you mentioned something that led me to ask that question. Does, should we hear a, a brief synopsis of how, this I happened. think so. Go I ahead. think so. Because it, it's, you know, it, it, it was fairly unusual. Um, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's unique, but it's fairly unusual. And this um, this happened on a Friday night um, in the happening area of Houston, Montrose. And uh, it was um, December the 10th, 1145, close to midnight. 
and people were at this nightclub and milling around on the outside of the nightclub, et cetera. And all of a sudden, uh, this um, unfortunate poor um, uh, victim comes running up the steps of the nightclub and says, please help me. He's trying to kill me. And I believe, as, as the record shows, the nightclub bouncers did not take it too seriously and said, you guys just keep it outside. And um, I think um, the young man, Aaron Shearhorn, uh, opened up his shirt and said, look, he's already stabbed me once. And anyway, at that point, the actual perpetrator came running up after him and Aaron Shearhorn, you know, being denied admission into the club, went running off uh, the perpetrator caught him. They wrestled, they tussled, they rolled around. Um, uh, Aaron was stabbed several times. He got up, got away, was tackled again. There was more struggling. And ultimately, um, the perpetrator uh, walked off into the night and, and um, the victim was pretty much dead, dead at the scene. And uh, no one knew either party. I mean, the, the perpetrator of the witnesses, the perpetrator and the victim were unknown to anybody. Um, I mean, there were more than six people that saw this, uh, six people actually testified in court. And, um, you know, the police, of course, make the scene and, and the victim is identified. And there are people who at least know him. Uh, they were not witnesses to the event and they have no idea what who would have committed this murder. And they have no idea what events would have led up to this murder. Nobody knows what he was doing four or five hours before this happened. And so it's, it's a mystery at that point. But, but interestingly, so I'm, I'm pick, I'm, you did a really nice job telling that story. I'm putting myself at that scene, right? I've been to Houston. I've been to, you know, I, I, I get, I, you know, it's a busy scene, but, but somebody coming up saying they were stabbed and then another person coming up and tackling them and grabbing them. And there's a crowd of people watching, right? Uh, lots of people saw the perpetrator. Yes. And um, I assume there was some kind of composite done, some kind of. You know, there was never a composite done that I know of. Uh, you know, and those composites always cause more mischief than, you know, than they do good. But uh, in my opinion, but what they did do is they interviewed at least the, I believe, seven witnesses. They interviewed them on videotape. Uh, you know, over the next 12 hours or so and and got their description of the events and their description of the perpetrator. And uh, the the descriptions, you know, were there was a broad range. I mean, some said he was six foot. Some said six, six. Some said 200 pounds. Some said 260 pounds. Hmm. Um, I mean, there were certain consistent things. They all put his age. They all said a black male. They all put his age at late twenties, early thirties. Um, if they described how he was dressed, they all said he was wearing an orange shirt. Um, apparently he was dressed pretty well. Um, like he was, you know, out for the evening, uh, which was, you know, seemed odd as well. Um, and, uh, so, so that's what they had to go on at that point. How'd they find your client? How'd they find Mr. Grant? Well, 24 hours later, um, Saturday night, Mr. Grant was parking his car in that very parking lot um, where this had taken place. And one of the bouncers or one of the employees of the nightclub saw him and 
and thought, well, that looks similar to the guy who, you know, committed this murder last night. I mean, he's, he's a black male. He's between six feet and six, six. <laughs> he's between 200 and 260 pounds. Um, he's not wearing an orange shirt, but, um, and, you know, he's late twenties, early thirties. And so he calls it in to crime stoppers, uh, I guess, hoping to collect. And I think did collect a reward, uh, and, and says he, you know, this is the car he's driving. Uh, somehow, uh, this, you know, witness got the VIN number for Mr. Grant's car. I, it wasn't the license plate number, but he got the VIN number and, um, and called it in. And, and of course, that information eventually made its way to the detective who put the car together with Mr. Grant and Mr. And then he, the detective working the case, put a photo spread together with six photos, Mr. Grant's photo being one of them and proceeded, I guess, you know, all day long Sunday, uh, which would have been the 12th, I suppose, December the 12th, Sunday, I believe, going to the various witnesses and um, getting them to pick Mr. Grant's picture out of the photo spread. And none of, you know, I read some, read a lot of articles about this case and this whole ID. So all six people picked Mr. Grant, even though it wasn't him. To some, uh, to, eventually, to some degree or another. I mean, they, they were sort of ran the spectrum to that's absolutely him to, right. uh, you know, I, 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 now this part was not videotaped. Right, right, right. That's what I was going to point out. Yeah. And I think it, it's fascinating that that wasn't videotaped, wasn't recorded. Um, was there suggestive uh, tones and uh, finger pointing? And was it this guy right here? And we don't we don't know because it was done either at their homes or in an office. It wasn't you didn't have people literally standing in a lineup. Not that those are that much better anyway. Right. Uh, but there's a photo lineup. And the cops obviously concluded eventually that uh, Lydell Grant was their person. And they right. and, and, and understand this was conducted. And this is kind of an important point um, in, in a non double blind manner. Um, and uh, that means that the detective, the investigating detective who's presenting the photo spread to the witnesses knows exactly which one of those photographs is the suspect. Now in 2000, uh, in the spring of 2011, less than a year later, uh, we at the Innocence Project of Texas were able to go to the legislature and get them by law to change the way police conduct these photo spread uh, identification procedures such that the individual administering the photo spread does not know which one of the six is the suspect. And, and the reason the law changed is, is because it was well known that that if you don't do it that way, the act, the detective who does know who the suspect is will tell the witness who to pick. That's why we had to change the law. That's wow. why the legislature agreed to change the law, because that's such a well-known fact. And I'm sure that's what happened in this case. Well, good for you for getting that law passed. That's that's uh, that's amazing. Just a little too little, little too little too late for Mr. Grant, um, unfortunately. Um, so how did you. Uh, his trial go? I mean, did he, did he have decent, uh, counsel with him? I'm sure it was court appointed from what I, I remember. Um, how, how did the trial go? Well, you know, he, uh, um, 
you know, by, by all accounts, his, his the, the lawyer that represented him at trial is a good lawyer. Um, he was court appointed. Uh, he, he, you know, certainly in hindsight, he should have had his own DNA expert that hopefully would have caught this. Um, and, but, you know, take that out. Um, I mean, there were six eyewitnesses. And by the time they testified in front of the jury, the prosecutor has them so conditioned to, 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 to make eye contact with the jury and to be completely sure that's the person and, 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 and it has coached them how to be convincing to the jury. And of course, jurors tend to believe eyewitnesses anyway, uh, even though it's probably one of the most unreliable forms of evidence. It is. Um, yep. And so Mr. Grant had an alibi. He'd, he'd been with someone else almost the entire night, certainly during the stretch of time that this murder took place. And, you know, they called his alibi witness, um, who was a credible witness, you know, who, who said, I was, no, I was with him all night. And, and no, he didn't murder anybody. You know, this is what we did. This is where we went. But, you know, what I have, you know, found out, discovered through this work is jurors never, ever believe alibi witnesses. They never believe alibi witnesses. In almost every exoneration case, um, are so many uh, that I've, you know, looked through the record on, there's been an alibi witness because if you didn't do it, if you're actually innocent, what other defense have you got? You know, I, <laughs> I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. Here's where I was, you know, and jurors never, ever believe it. It's a really interesting point. We've had lots of uh, um, wrongfully convicted people on open mic here. And uh, I can remember a couple of, uh, clear-cut alibi cases where the jury did not believe it and nobody surmised what you just did you know that that they just don't believe them but that that's so that's really interesting to me um that you find that across the board and i think you're right um so so he was convicted he was sentenced to how many years was that uh, life life and um Mr. Grant submitted a letter, your team who gets hundreds of these requests a month um, as obviously a very good vetting process because whoever you have vetting it, the students at Texas A&M and whoever else um, were impressed with this enough to take a deeper dive, look through the transcripts, look through the evidence. And what's astonishing, and you already said this, is that a student, a law student, um, you know, found the DNA anomalies anomalies. And you already said that, but it's, it's, I'm looking at my notes here. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, mean, I, you know, when I was in law school, I don't even know if there was DNA. I think the OJ trial hadn't even happened yet, but um, it's, uh, it's impressive. I mean, this kid, this law student, you know, uh, saved this guy's life. Yes. He certainly, uh, certainly was a very important part of that. Yes. And, and so you, you were saying earlier that, that, you know, when this person, did, did this student bring it to your attention and say, look what I found here? Well, what the way we run our, our clinic, you know, we have maybe um, 10 students in the class. They all have their own case. And once a week, we meet for two hours and discuss the cases. And so when it was his turn to discuss his case, that's how it came to our attention. And, and so, so you, you, you see this information, he's already been in prison for almost 10 years. Um, do you have an expert you work with? I assume you have an expert you work with who you took it to. 
Yes, yes. You know, I mean, yeah. And in, in, in a sort of like, are we crazy or do you see what we see? You know, that kind of thing. And yeah, Angie Ambers, um, who is, um, you know, with a with a forensic um, school in, in Connecticut now. But um, for a long time, she was in Fort Worth. And uh, so we, we got Angie Ambers on board, who's, you know, an excellent DNA person. And she um, started helping us get this process, you know, shepherded through where um, we could, uh, you know, take it to the next stage and then the next stage. And everything just started falling into place. And how quickly, I mean, I have a name here, Gianmarco Carter. Um, this is the individual, 42-year-old 42 indivi individual who actually killed and what was the murder yes how quickly between the time that that your expert looked at it did you have this guy's name well actually pretty quickly um and uh i mean it's all relative but uh but what happened was that um you know we brought like i said we brought this to the attention of the conviction integrity unit at the harris county district attorney's office and, you know, once again, we kind of had to walk them through it. said, see this, see this low side here. None of the alleles on this in this low side are Lydell's and two of the alleles are the victims and two of the alleles are somebody we have no clue who they are. And that's same true at this low side, at this low side, this low side. Ergo, Lydell is excluded and somebody else, an unknown individual is in there. And they were like, well, you want us to, 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 to retest the DNA? And I said, that's fine. You can do that. But why do I want to retest the DNA? The, the, the original test excludes my client. You know, why, why create more things that can go wrong? Just give me, give me the original data that generated this DNA report that excludes my client and let me take it to Angie Ambers, you know, our expert, and let her take it to the people she wants to take it to. And then if y'all want to go ahead on some parallel track and take it to the Texas Department of Public Safety and let them test as well, then that's fine. But that's up to you. In the meantime, I want the original data analyzed by people who have more sophisticated ways of analyzing mixtures than the way it was done back in 2011. And they said? Well, they, we took it, Angie, um, took it to uh, Cybergenetics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they have a um, probabilistic genotyping software uh, called uh, TrueLL, uh, which has been, you know, vetted and, and validated, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's a highly accurate, sophisticated way of analyzing mixtures. And so they ran it through their um, TrueLL software and they said, well, we we can we've extracted the profile of the unknown donor. Well, you know, we don't know who it is. We don't know any. You don't know what they look like. We don't know if they're dead or alive. We don't know if they're from, you know, Europe or Russia or the United States. We don't know anything, anything about them, but it, it's a male profile. And all these different numbers are associated with this male profile. And it is it is such a strong profile and so reliable that we can get this uploaded into the national database. And if this profile belongs to an offender who has already been entered into the national database, then we'll find out who it is. 
And so I've never, um, I said, yeah, sure. Let's do that. And, uh, <laughs> sounds uh, good to me. What's that? It sounds good to me. And I'm yeah, sure it sounds good to me. I'm not, I'm not, you know, my experience has been, uh, private entities cannot get that done. You have to, you have to go through a law enforcement agency and law enforcement agencies. It's very difficult to get it done through them because, you know, they have all these, um, all these uh, rules and regulations they hide behind, uh, which are basically designed to prevent you from yeah. exonerating people. Not in help my you. Opinion. They're designed to not help. The yeah. Yeah. Like you. And so fortunately they could do it and did do it. And we didn't have to wait on law enforcement to do it. They, they got it entered through um, a, uh, a sheriff's office in South Carolina that they had a relationship with. And uh, it came back with a hit. And uh, so we got notified. Um, I mean, it was just a couple of weeks later. We got notified and we were very anxious to see who it hit because, you know, you, you want to corroborate, you know, trust but verify. I mean, was it, you know, some, you know, five foot five lawyer from Oregon or was it, you know, it, well, what, whatever. Right. So we looked it up and and he was you know, a six foot two, 220 pound black male from Houston. That was the, or at the time would have been the exact age that everybody described him as. Wow. And then, you know, on further investigation, we found out that he had been arrested. Um, I think not a hundred feet from that very spot where the murder took place about eight months before that for some little crack deal, I think. Wow. And, um, uh, and, but he was definitely out of jail when this murder took place. And when we tried to locate him, you know, in 2019, when all this information came up, we found that he had quickly left Houston after this murder took place and had relocated to the Atlanta, Georgia area. And was he, wasn't he arrested in Atlanta on different charges or something? Was he sitting in jail when you guys were doing, going through this? Well, when we first found this out, he was at large. They, nobody knew where he was. He, he had an outstanding warrant for his arrest out of Georgia. And he had, in fact, stabbed somebody else in Georgia, according to a police report we found. Um, but, you know, the, uh, we took all this information to the DA's office and, um, to some extent, they were like, well, okay, that's very interesting. I'm like, well, you know, go arrest this guy, <laughs> you know, do something. They're like, well, how are we going to find him? You know, I'm like, well, you're the police, you know, you, you can find anybody. You, you always find my clients. Did you, <laughs> you must have, Mike, wanted to beat your head against the wall yeah. after talking to them. Like, I mean, like they, they, oh my God, this is crazy story. <laughs> so, so, um, Anyway, that, that was in the summer of 2019. And, um, you know, they, they were somewhat skeptical of this whole process we'd been through. And so they hired, they, they fortunately hired somebody very competent to advise them on all this. Uh, a guy named Mike Coble, uh, who's also from Fort Worth um, with the University of North Texas Health Science Center. And he assured them that, um, number one, that, 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 that um, TrueLL software and cyber genetics were the real deal. That that that's a highly reliable way of determine of of unraveling mixtures, and that what had what had gone into the CODIS database as an unknown 
had gone in. All of that had been done brilliantly and precisely and correctly. And that this was a legitimate CODIS hit. This Carter was a, a legitimate CODIS hit. And so they are like, okay, but they, they still want to investigate my client. They still want to subpoena his bank records. They still want to, they still want to um, uh, download his phone. They still want to, uh, I mean, they're still trying to find some connection between him and the murder or something they can argue is a connection. 2019? Yeah. He was already in prison. Well, yeah, but, but, you know, but we're filing uh, legal actions to have him released. So rather than going out and finding uh, Carter, they want to keep investigating your guy who's sitting in a life prison, life in prison sentence. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I, that's uh, very strange. Yeah. And um, rather than going to find Mr. Carter and investigating him. Yeah, I know. I know. I, it was frustrating. But to their credit, eventually, um, in late December of uh, 2019, um, I got a call from the DA's office, and they said that Carter had been arrested in Atlanta, Georgia, on other charges, and that the Houston Police Department cold case detectives had flown to Atlanta, Georgia, and had interviewed him, and in about two hours, he fully confessed to this murder and they had it on videotape. And that at this, at that point, they said they would agree to relief for Lydell Grant. Isn't that nice of them? Well, that's like what I, I could get. I, well, listen, you did a fabulous job. I'm just, the story is, is frustrated. I'm frustrated all these years later. It's actually been only a couple of years. So I'm, I'm, fa I'm curious, you know, did Mr. Grant know what was going on? during these months that went by once you guys knew that there was another name, you knew he didn't do it. You knew there was another suspect or more than a suspect. Um, did, did you, or did you keep him kind of in the dark not to get his hopes up? What did you do? Well, as soon as, you know, we found out that there was a, a CODIS hit. Um, I, you know, I, I went out to the prison and talked to him about it. And, um, you know, I kind of, I kind of wanted to know, um, you know, did he know this guy? Um, you know, had he ever seen this guy before? Um, I mean, it, it, there, there's no reason why he would know him, right? <laughs> or or would have seen him before, but still, you know, and and uh, but of course, you know, I didn't want him talking about it. So I and I didn't want, I didn't want to be any there be any accusation of tainting anything. So I, I was somewhat limited in what I told him, but I did tell him that we had found the actual guy. And that I was confident that things would would start going better from that point forward. Um, the DA's office at that point, you know, without getting into the legal aspect of it, at that point, after the DNA came back, he was eligible for bail. And so we tried to get the DA's office to agree to bail, which they would not do. Um, and so all, all the communication with Mr. Grant was traveling to the prison and talking to him. And we tried to keep him apprised. Now at, at in November of 2019, the DA's office finally agreed to bail. And um, I mean, we had a hearing set up twice. We had had a hearing set up earlier to put our case on for why he should get bail. Um, 
and, and because the DA's office wasn't agreeing. And then the DA's office asked for a continuance. So, you know, we had a room full of Lydell supporters, but we had to send them all home and say the DA's delaying this process. And uh, but then we came back the, the week before Thanksgiving in 2019 and we had another hearing set up. And uh, this time before the hearing, the DA's office agreed to bail. And so we got him out on bail on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving of 2019. So from November of 2019 to December of 2019, he was out on bail and he remained on bail, um, I guess, here until this last May, last month, um, May of 2021, because the Court of Criminal Appeals sat on the case that long. And uh, uh, in May of 2021, the Court of Criminal Appeals found him actually innocent. And, and, and right after that, the, the Harris County District Attorney's Office dismissed all charges against him. And so at that point, he is no longer on bail, but he's only been off bail for about a month now. Wow. What a story. Congratulations. I mean, he, uh, I mean, <laughs> had they had this, I mean, in 2011, they had the technology these, these other companies have been around since 2011. Had the DNA been tested properly in 2011, they, they, they would have, well, if Mr. Carter was already in the system by then, they would have found him then. You know, and, and uh, the, the technologies have not been, um, uh, they may have been around back then, but they, they were not generally accepted in the scientific community until later on, I would say beginning more like 2015, 2017 in that area. Now, I think possibly, um, you know, another analysis could have been done that could have that that would have reasonably excluded Mr. Grant. Um, oh, incidentally, you know, when I said that they wanted to go ahead and retest the DNA in 2019 and have the Texas Department of Public Safety do it. They went ahead and did that and used up the rest of the DNA from the fingernail swabbing, I believe. And, and, uh, and, and they did determine that Lydell Grant was in fact excluded from that mixture, but they said so they claim they, that the Texas Department of Public Safety did not get adequate results such that they could upload it into CODIS. Um, so, Thank goodness we didn't have to rely on law enforcement. Oh, inconsistent again, it sounds like. Yeah. And I, you know, Mike, I have a note here that you mentioned that the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, you know, sat on it. But I have a note here that they review, refused his exoneration uh, request. And instead, they asked that the six eyewitnesses who originally testified against him respond to his claims of innocence. Is that yeah. true? Yeah. Well, this is this is what did happen. We, we submitted all of this to the Court of Criminal Appeals by January of 2020, early 2020, or late 2019. And in April of 2019, or 2020 rather, they sent back an order to the trial judge that said, we want you to send us the actual video recording of the perpetrator confessing, which was unusual and kind of odd I thought maybe they were just kind of, you know, curious. I don't know. Uh, maybe they themselves wanted to play investigator. Um, maybe all of a sudden they, they thought they were experts on false confessions or something. I don't know. 
Uh, maybe they didn't believe the police. Maybe they didn't believe the prosecutor. Maybe they didn't believe the judge. Maybe they didn't believe us. And they wanted to see it themselves. And and who knows what kind of mischief they wanted to they wanted to create out of that. But anyway, we sent it to them. That's fine. And I mean, right away. And then we didn't hear anything until July. Um, let's see, March. You know, three months later. And it was at that point that they sent out another order ordering the judge, the district judge, who had already found Lydell to be actually innocent, to gather affidavits from the six eyewitnesses. Now, this is during a pandemic. And this is and this is 10 years later, you know, to, to the judge to get affidavits from the six eyewitnesses explaining what their position is now um, about whether or not they were wrong about their eyewitness identification, which is crazy crazy they're not family they're not i mean i understand going to family members and whatever of the deceased but the eyewitnesses they don't have a dog in this fight well i mean i i, I don't know what the thought process was but it couldn't have been good uh, i don't know whether they they um um i don't know i i mean this was a dna exoneration even without the confession you know wh whether you've got <laughs> this was a dna exoneration plus now, why they would try to send people on that kind of fool's errand um, in a pandemic when the, when the Harris County DA's office is trying to prosecute the actual perpetrator, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, do they want to hold these people up for ridicule? Right. Uh, I mean, these 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 people, these people, they have participated in putting away an innocent man. Do you think they want this kind of attention brought on them? You know, and what are they going to say? I mean, at this point, it really doesn't even matter what they say. Uh, they were wrong. You know, you know, you, you, this whole story. When I, I don't know about you when you were in law school, how you learned about wrongful identifications in your crim law class. Um, and I think you teach you teach some of these classes now, right? Yes. I remember my professor coming in. Um, it was I think the first day of crim law and he came in in a crazy outfit. And he, you know, he ran around the f stealing things and then he ran out and then he got back dressed and he came in and he started asking us law students who were, you know, 20s, uh, who were paying attention, who were, you know, reasonably intelligent people to identify what they saw. And I remember the exercise of everybody getting it wrong, right? You know, right. what did he steal and what was he wearing and how tall and how short he might have actually even had a um, an actor do it with him. It's been so long. Right, right. And I'm thinking about this case. This is like, this is the most perfect case to teach in law school, to teach anybody about, you know, cops, anything about how bad wrongful IDs are. I mean, we talk about it all the time, but six, I have not had taught, seen a case where there were six eyewitnesses and some of them saying they're for sure certain that this was the person they get up under oath, pointed at the man, this was him. It's this is a uh, uh, this is a academic uh, lesson right here that oh, needs yeah. to be uh, turned into some kind of short movie or something to show everybody who can see it how bad these. I mean, judges need to see it. Everybody needs to see it. This is a man who spent ten years in prison for these six. I mean, I don't. You know, you blame them, of course, but you of, of course blame the detectives who. Um, 
who led them down the path of picking the person they wanted him to pick. I mean, the tunnel vision of, of uh, their investigation. I mean, they, the, the killer was out there. They yeah. just, they didn't, they didn't uh, do a good enough job to find him. And I, God knows how many other crimes uh, he, Mr. Carter committed um, in those 10 years. Exactly. He doesn't sound like a good guy. Well, I, you know, I don't know him. Uh, and he's still got to stand trial. So um, we'll see what happens. But he is he is indicted and he is in custody. And uh, the, the, the murder charge is pending against him. Is uh, is Mr. Grant going to get um, do they have is he going to get some money in Texas for being uh, wrongfully convicted? Well, we, we were able to get a statute passed back in also back in uh 2011, or actually it was 2009, I believe. And, and um, if someone is found to be actually innocent after they've been convicted and incarcerated, not, not if they get relief on some other ground, but if they're, if they meet the high standard of actual innocence, then they are entitled to $80,000 a year for every year they're locked up. Okay. Probably not enough, but it's better than nothing. I agree. In Michigan, it's fifty thousand, um, which isn't enough. Um, and of course, I, I I don't even need to ask it, but of course, nobody else is held accountable. The DAs, the detectives, the nobody else is ever held accountable um, for for putting this innocent man in prison. No, uh, and you know, I, and I'll point out that. Um, the district attorney's office was able to get a um, written declaration from one of the witnesses. They, I think they talked to all of them, but they only got a written declaration for one. And the witness basically said the police told me who to pick. And they turned that over to you. Yeah, we, 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 well, the, the uh, uh, court of criminal appeals uh, required that to be made part of the record. That was part of the order that was in response to the court's order. So that, that was sent back to the court of criminal appeals. And like, like I said, eventually, I mean, that was done in January and in, in May the 19th, they, the court of criminal appeals ruled. And even if you could identify that exact detective, that person's never going to be held accountable either. Um, no, no. I mean, that's just, you know, people make mistakes, part of the job. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned this, this, this law that you got passed. I, I think that, I mean, not even half of the states have, you know, proper identification uh, laws that, that say, you know, what you described earlier, that it's got to be blind. It, it, the, the, the detective, the, whoever's putting on the lineup can't know who the suspect is. Right. Um, you know, what's, what's your, how do we get that passed in every state? Well, uh, you know, I, it, <laughs> you're asking the wrong person. We, we, just had, we just had a very dismal year at the legislature when we were trying to get a, a lot of bipartisan laws passed on criminal justice reform, and, um, and almost nothing got through. Um, and and I, I, I don't know if it was all, um, you know, backlash, um, because of the George Floyd case and, and uh, you know, a bunch of white politicians showing, you know, 
showing what they think of Black Lives Matter or what. So I'm not I'm not uh, the guru on getting legislation passed, uh, although we have had some success in the past. Um, mostly what's worked with us is having exonerees show up and tell their story. Um, that's been the most um, one of the most effective ways um, to persuade legislatures at the committee hearings have exonerees such as Lydell Grant show up and tell their story. He's the poster child. We should fly him around the country in those states that don't have it. He would do it. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to meet him one day. Maybe we can arrange that. That would be, uh, I'd love for him to be able to tell his story. It's, it's, uh, it's as frustrating of a story as I've ever heard. And we've, we've had 10 or 11 exonerees on our show. And, um, this, this one is, uh, right up there. And they're all frustrating. They're all frustrating in different ways. But to have six people, I, I can't imagine he's sitting there at trial and there's six people pointing at him saying he killed that man. I mean, it's, I, I, I can't even imagine. Six, well, not one. Usually it's one. Right. Six. How does six, who's not going to convict on six people? Who's not going to convict? I mean, I, it's a slam dunk. I, I asked this to an exoneree recently. Did you know you were going to get convicted? He said, absolutely. I would have convicted myself, he said. And I, I bet you Mr. Grant would say the same thing. Probably so. I mean, yes. I mean, I, it's just, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of mind boggling. I saw a statistic that you believe or, you know, over 5,000 people, at least 5,000 people or more in Texas prisons are actually innocent. You, you stand by that number? I, I, I think so. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there, there's no real, you know, scientific way to determine that. I know that the academics who study these sorts of things have assigned the number of somewhere around 6% of uh, people who are convicted are actually innocent of the conviction. And, um, and if you just apply that number to the number of people locked up in Texas prisons, it comes out to a large number. Well, you are, you are in a tough state a very conservative state on um, the fact that you have an innocence project that you founded. Is, it's just amazing. I think you're doing really great work. Um, and I appreciate it. And I'm sure the people of Texas appreciate it. If people watching, listening to open mic want to help the innocence project of Texas, how will they, how could they find you? Um, you can go on our website, um, uh, innocence, texas.org. Uh, and, uh, or, or call me on my cell phone. Hell, 817-992-1132. That's great. That is great, Mike. Well, thank you for being on Open Mic. Uh, I, I think these stories are so important to tell um, for lots and lots of reasons. I think that the public absolutely needs to know what's going on out there. Thankfully, more and more people are getting um, let out of prison who are wrongfully convicted. There's more and more uh, the integrity units are being set up and more and more cities and states which i think is super duper important and um you know i i, I think uh, mr grant is really really lucky that uh you set up such a good team there to look at his case so congratulations on the success uh keep up the good work and well, thank you for being thank here. you very much mike for for giving me the opportunity to come on your show and, and talk about the case i really appreciate it thank you my pleasure nice to meet you
Texas Innocent Project came through for Lydell Grant. Six eyewitnesses said he, he killed a man and they were dead wrong. The actual killer proven by DNA evidence is on trial right now in the state of Georgia or going to be on trial in the state of Georgia. Just mind blowing six. I, I don't, I, I can't wrap my head around it. Let me know what you think about this case. Let me know what you think uh, happened here. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you need to share this show with somebody who should hear it as well, please forward it. Please like our show comment. And we really appreciate it. We're well over a hundred episodes almost 4 million downloads and listens for our show. And it's, it's flattering and I'm grateful for all of the support and all the people watching and listening. So thank you. Thank you for being a fan of open mic and we'll see you next time.